Jesus didn't die for everyone. He only died for his people, for some. That may sound shocking to you, but it's true. Jesus didn't die for everyone. Jesus didn't die on the cross to make everyone savable. He died to save his people from their sins. Tonight on Sinners and Saints, we are talking about the L in TULIP, limited atonement. Stay with us tonight as we continue our discussion. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints, theology with an edge. Welcome to Sinners and Saints tonight. Glad to have you joining us. And for our discussion this evening, we have Reverend Adam Kalushian from Ontario United Reformed Church and Reverend Moses Genbazian from Pasadena URC. And I'm John Sautel, pastor at First United Reformed Church of Chino. We're going to continue on in our series on TULIP. And tonight, uh, we're going to take on the next letter in the acronym L, Limited Atonement. We talk about limited atonement as Reformed people. What do we mean? We mean that from the design of the atonement that God willed for his people, that it was necessary that Christ actually die, pay for the sins, and redeem, ransom a particular group, as opposed to making salvation generally available, a grab bag that everybody could reach into. Now, is that a divisive or particularly problematic interpretation well yeah atonement? absolutely I mean, that, you, you drive you make around it sound so easy you drive, you drive around you see the bumper sticker jesus he died for the opportunity or you hear the call that you know jesus died for you and jesus died for everybody all they got to do is accept that gift that he give so i mean basically uh this is a a great division in the church deciding the question whether or not Jesus died for everybody that has ever existed in the world, or whether he died for his elect, only a certain okay. number. Well, let, let's break down the various options you have when you come to the whole issue of the atonement and its extent. What are the possible options uh, you can go with this? Well, you have probably about four possibilities. One is that God didn't save anybody through Jesus' death, and that it was kind of a senseless thing. It was just sort of an example People could have been saved just by saving themselves. There is the other option that Jesus saved absolutely everybody. And his death was not only making it possible, but actually did bring about the salvation of everyone. Because in the end, you know, in the end, God has to love. He can't hate those who he made in his image. Yeah, then there's the possibility that uh, he died and sort of provisionally paid for everybody's sins or gave the necessary sacrifice. But really, whether or not that sacrifice is applied to them depends on their free will sort of acceptance of that gift. Or you have the orthodox position of the Christian church, which is the one we're propounding tonight, the idea of limited atonement, which is that God has his elect, and then he sends Christ into the world to shed his precious blood for those elect people, and they will most certainly be saved. Those are your basic okay, options. Okay, well, th this is what makes it so perplexing. We're all reading the same Bible, aren't we? 
I mean, it's not like we all have different Bibles, and the reason why we're confused about this issue is because my particular Bible says he makes people savable or he saved no one. How in the world, if we're all reading the same text, the same Bible, how do we come up with four different options on something that seems, uh, you know, like Scripture would speak to it, at least with some degree of clarity? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons why people disagree. I mean, there could be the idea of ignorance. People haven't really studied the issue. They haven't thought about it. Maybe they were taught something as they grew up. But, I mean, I, I think that the, you raised the key point, which is what does the Bible say? I mean, this is going to be, you know, however you respond initially to this question, you know, for whom did Jesus die exactly, you're going to have to say that we all are required to submit our thinking about that question to the Bible. I mean, that's going to be our approach to the okay, subject. Okay, okay, okay. Let's take that as a test case. Then let's just take the first one that you give Moses. He died to ma- He died and didn't save anyone. Does the Scripture anywhere teach that Christ went to the cross for the purpose of saving no one? No, nowhere does it say that. The reason that you might come up with that option is if you try to figure out a way of applying these doctrines of salvation, and so. Even though Scripture doesn't say that no one was saved, it's a possibility that you would have to grant if you said, okay, what are all the theoretical possibilities? And if you believe that somehow people have to become good enough, then obviously Christ's death doesn't matter. So people could save themselves apart from Christ's death, or even with Christ's death, nobody can get themselves saved. So Christ's death is somewhat inconsequential at that point. Yeah, now before you would hear this and say, well, nobody really believes that, I want you to know one of the forerunners of a lot of the modern evangelistic methods by the name of Charles Finney is a guy who believed exactly this. And this might surprise you, but uh, people who don't agree with Finney on this follow a lot of his methods and things for evangelism. But Finney believed that when Jesus died on the cross for sins. He really didn't do it to save anybody. The point was, he, God just wanted to show, Jesus just wanted to show that sin was serious. Yeah, God, God, yeah exactly. Nobody would really take God seriously if he just sort of forgave people freely. The moral, but, you know, the moral government idea that uh, it's like your mom and dad, if they just threaten you verbally over and over again and never use any corporal punishment to back up their threats, then... Uh, you'd never know whether they're serious about their, you know, their prohibitions or their commands or whatever. Right. So even if you might say, well, nobody really says that. Well, you ought to know that idea is very influential. It shapes a lot of the way that uh, some of the modern evangelistic does anybody think, so you does have to it, deal with. Know, I, I would actually say that it is probably the majority view of people today. Well, I and that's okay, they do? Oh, um, yeah, actually, one phrase that I was taught, which I believe many people think is right, is salvation by death. Anybody who dies, all of a sudden you start saying, oh, okay. well, you know, he, he was a good guy. He wasn't, you know, he never murdered anyone and all that. There's no way he's in hell. But how does that, how does that square with the atonement? I mean, how do you bring that into the whole issue of Christ dying? Well, it basically is a question of why did Christ die? What did he accomplish? And until you nail down and understand the doctrine of the atoning work of Christ, this it becomes a pointless discussion. But I think that's what people have done is they don't understand the doctrine. They just look and say, well, this person wasn't the, he wasn't a Hitler. So you can't say that he's in hell. So Christ's death doesn't matter. Yeah. To me, the key question in understanding atonement, and we're going to talk about this over at least a couple of shows, the, the key question in understanding the extent of the atonement, you know, for whom did Christ die, is to understand what exactly is the right. atonement. Yeah. How does the Bible 
explain what Jesus did on the cross. If you understand that, then you will see that the Bible's teaching also is that he died only for his elect. But we we got to start with a broader okay, question. Okay, well, let, let's yeah. hold on a minute. After we come back from the break, because we're up a time constraint here, we're up against the clock here. When we come back after the break, we're going to uh, just go through the scriptures, first of all, and just talk about the atonement. What does it mean? And then we can maybe go on from there and discuss uh, the extent of it. So stay tuned with us after the break on Sinners and Saints. You're listening to Sinners and Saints on 99.5 FM, KKLA. Hi, this is Reverend John Sautel, pastor of Congregational Life and Outreach at First United Reformed Church of Chino. We are a Protestant, Bible-based, family-oriented church committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are located just off the 60 freeway at Mountain Avenue in Chino. We worship at 10 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. every Sunday. If you'd like more information about our church, give us a call at 866-99-UNITED. That's 866-99-UNITED. Are you looking for a church that values the Word of God and the rediscovery of its riches in the Protestant Reformation? Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalustian. I want to invite you to join us at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway, go north one block to Philadelphia Street, turn right, and you'll see us. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. Thanks for joining us after the break here, Sinners and Saints, tonight, talking about uh, the L in TULIP. And by the way, if you'd like to know more about uh, Reformed doctrine, Reformed theology, and even more about this particular point, you can call us at 866-99-UNITED or check us out on the website SinnerSaint.org. Uh, We'd also like to give away to you a copy of the Three Forms of Unity, which uh, are doctrinal statements. And they're very clear on this particular point, but what we wanted to get back to was the whole issue of what is the nature of the atonement, because we said uh, that the real key to understanding the extent of the atonement is to understand what is the atonement, what is its nature, what was being accomplished in the atonement. I think, Adam, you had a passage you want to go to here uh, which helps understand that meaning. The classic expression of the atonement is in Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 24 and 25. God's people are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The atonement, Jesus' death on the cross, is described here as a propitiation in his blood. What does propitiation mean? Well, there's there's a couple different ways you can translate the word in the original, but it literally means in the original, mercy seat. It's the very same word that is used in Leviticus uh, 16. It's the uh, the lid on the tarp, top of the Ark of the Covenant. It's a place where the blood of the animal sacrifice was sprinkled on the Day of the Atonement, which was specifically for uh, the propitiation or the atonement of the sins which Israel committed unknowingly. Um, so, knowing that was the intention of it, some interpreters have taken this to mean not literally the mercy seat, but simply the atoning sacrifice, the sin, uh, the sacrifices which are for the purpose of atoning for the sins uh, committed. Yeah, the, the idea of propitiation is that God is angry with sinners, and God's anger is burning against sinners, and God will destroy those sinners unless his anger can be propitiated. That is, unless satisfaction can be made to pay for the sins of those who have sinned against them. There's a, a story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18 that uses the same word. It helps to illustrate uh, what the idea of propitiation is. Uh, he speaks this parable. Two men 
went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed uh, this way with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, like the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I possess. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as even raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, the translation there is interesting. Uh, we said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what he's actually saying there is, God, be propitiated uh, toward me, a sinner. He recognizes that he is a sinful man and that God's anger is burning against him and that what he needs is that the anger of God against him would be turned away from him. Be propitiated to me. In Colossians, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, he says the following, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him, referring to Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. What we're dealing with then is an angry God who has to be reconciled and the reconciliation, the atonement, the redemption is worked by Christ through his blood. It pacifies, it causes the anger of God, his wrath, to be satisfied, whereby peace can be made. That is very important to define the atonement in this way. Uh, typically, Protestants have called this, going all the way back to uh, the 12th century with Anselm, the satisfaction theory of the atonement. There are a number, and this is important for you to realize, there are a number of different theories of the atonement out there. One of them is that Christ has simply died to set an example of radical commitment and obedience to God, you have uh, various different ones. We already mentioned the moral governor one where God just put Christ on the cross to show that you know, he really meant it when he said he didn't like sin. But this theory is the only one which is consistent with these passages you're reading. It's about blood. It's about God being angry. It's about wrath. That had to be taken care of. And that's really what's uh, at the heart of the atonement. And the question then becomes, once God's wrath has been taken care of, then what does God do? What is in accordance with his nature and character to do when he no longer has wrath? For those made in his image, where his wrath against them has already been taken care of through the blood of Christ, he must love them. It is his character to love that against which he is not angry. And so the atonement that Christ has made, the redemption that he has brought for us, means that we are now loved by God. Loved means receiving all the benefits, all the blessings of his saving grace. There's another passage, too, on the whole business of what the nature of the atonement is, and that's, that's in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. It said that God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. You can't understand the atonement correctly until you understand that before Christ went to the cross, the sins of people were laid on Christ. So he goes as a sin bearer to the cross. That, that's another helpful clue to help you understand what's going on at the cross. God is punishing sins. Yeah. Why does Jesus cry out in agony to the Father on the cross, why have you forsaken me? I mean, on what grounds would God the Father forsake his beloved, perfect, holy, and righteous Son, Jesus Christ, the one with whom he has had blessed and intimate fellowship from all of eternity. Why would he forsake him on the cross? Why is the cross so scandalous and so awful? It's because our sin was laid upon Jesus. And Jesus is bearing the full anger of God that was against us in our place. That's what propitiation is. 
One other text along these lines that talks about, uh, that, that, that helps us understand the nature of the atonement is the same one that Adam read also in Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 24 and 25 there, and it talks about it being a redemption, the redemption through his blood. Redemption means the payment of a price to set captives free. That's that's what the term means outside of the New Testament, what's used in the Greek literature. It was used of setting slaves free, criminals free, or whatever, but it's a payment price. Let's let's really deal with that. This is a book written in the first century in a context in which slavery exists, and the terms ransom and redemption both come from the slave market. They would have understood it in terms of a purchase price being made and property being transferred. To them, there would have been no question this is what it's saying. Once Christ pays for you, you belong to him. So either his redemption is for each and every person, and each and every person is set free never to see the face of God in wrath, or he has purchased a deliberate number and they receive this blessing, but others are left with their former master. Yeah, this is just the basic understanding of what happened on the cross. My little children, First John 2, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, why would you need an advocate if you sin? It's because God is angry with you for sinning and he does not want to have a good relationship. You have alienated yourself from him. You deserve condemnation, but Jesus, it says, himself is the propitiation for our sins. He takes away the anger of God. He pleads to the Father on our behalf, accept him because I have received the punishment that they deserved. You cannot understand the atonement until you understand God is full of wrath and he's angry against sin. And that's one of the principal things which the atonement is all about, is that Jesus is dealing with sin and he's dealing with God's wrath. There's another uh, key way of understanding the atonement. We're going to talk about it after the break, and that's the substitution. There's a substitution going on at the cross when Christ goes there. He's going in our place. So uh, stay tuned with us after the break. Reformation Radio. Theology with an edge. Come to worship God at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Hear the gospel faithfully preached. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. Come and join us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. We are located at 226 West Colorado in Arcadia off the Santa Anita exit of the 210 freeway. Call us at 866-99-UNITED or visit us at urcsocal.org. Hi, this is Pastor Bureau of Grace Evangelical Church in Torrance. We are a new Reformed Church serving all of South Bay. As a member of the United Reformed Churches of North America, Grace Evangelical Church emphasizes the preaching of the gospel, weekly administration of the Lord's Supper, catechism of our children, and emphasis on the singing of the Psalms, all in a family-friendly atmosphere. Come, worship with us. You can reach us at area code 310-782-7019. All right, we want to thank you again for joining us tonight on Sinners and Saints. We're continuing on our discussion here about the atonement, dealing with the L in TULIP. And what we're arguing for is is a biblical case for the limited nature, or the, rather the particular nature of the atonement. Christ died to save somebody. He died to save his people. But, you know, before you even get to that part of the argument, you have to get to the part of the argument where you understand what the atonement was. And so we talked about the fact that the atonement is about appeasing God's wrath. There's one other, I think, very important key to understanding uh, the nature of the atonement, and the fact, and that is the fact that it's substitutionary. You find this language all throughout Scripture. Christ died. 
for us, for sinners, for people. I mean, just think of how many texts are there in the New Testament uh, about this uh, substitutionary role. Oh, there's quite a few, and it's not always stated directly, although it is quite often, but sometimes even by inference. And when you add those, it becomes really the dominant theme of the New Testament, that you have been redeemed by the substitutionary death of Christ, and therefore, having been purchased, ransomed, redeemed, you are a new people, and you cannot go on in that way. Matthew 121, in the prophecy about Christ, he will save his people from their sins. His work will be on their behalf. The Son of Man came not to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for many, to make a payment for them. And then by inference, Ephesians 5, speaking about husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Yeah, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and has given himself for me. Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So what we see here again and again is this incredible, beautiful love of God displayed in that he chose to love us. And then instead of making us redeem ourselves, instead of calling upon us to make ourselves holy and acceptable, he becomes sin on our behalf faces the punishment that we may become the righteousness of God. Okay, so what we've got is that the atonement is God sending Christ and laying the sins that we have on him, punishing Christ in our place. If you understand that, then you are going to understand that the atonement is limited in its extent, meaning it is for certain people and it's not for everybody. You said something in that that was key, and I don't know if it's intentional or not, but you said God sent him. I mean, when you're getting down to this whole issue of it being specific, uh, you have to go back behind the actual atonement itself, that Christ went to the cross, that he died, he died for sin, so forth and so on. Why was he even there to begin with? Because God, in his love, chose to make the payment for those who couldn't make it themselves. But God sent him. I mean, God the Father chose before time in the covenant of redemption, something we'll discuss other times, where he and the Son agreed that the Father would give to the Son a people, but the Son had to purchase those people, and then at the end of the age, that he would present them all back to the Father. So the question you have to ask here, and you have to answer, you cannot get around this, because if God sent him, what's more reasonable to believe? That God sent Christ to save no one? that God sent Christ to only make people savable, or did God send Christ to accomplish something, that is, secure the redemption of his people? Right, to actually save actually people. Actually save now, people. There's a, there's a story that illustrates, it will help you to understand, it's fairly simple. When I was introduced to this uh, doctor many, many years ago, I, I rejected it. I didn't like the way it sounded. I couldn't believe that Jesus didn't die for everybody. That's what I always taught. But somebody explained it to me real carefully. They said, look, let's say that uh, I owe John a million dollars. And there's no way over the course of my life that I'm going to have access to a million dollars to pay him back. Nothing I could do that would do it. But Moses comes over and he gives John a million dollars and says, this is to pay for the debt that Adam owes you. Now, can John come to me later and say, Adam, you still owe me a million dollars? Not in a righteous way. No, of course not. He would be completely unjust to demand payment uh, from me of something that has already been paid for on my behalf. And it's the same way with the atonement. If God sent Jesus Christ to die for everyone's sins, and he does, then 
If God sent Jesus Christ to die for everyone's sins, and Jesus dies for everybody's sins, then God would be unjust to punish anyone in eternity if Jesus had already died for them. So now you have to make a decision. Is God just and fair, and he has received payment on behalf of everyone by Christ's work, and therefore he has to forgive everyone and everyone is saved? Or is God an unfair, an unjust, an arbitrary God who, even though Jesus made the payment for some people's sins, he still sends them to hell? If the doctrine of the atonement is, as we explain it from Scripture, then God must either save everyone or become unholy and damn some to hell if anyone is going to hell. Okay, we've set up a preliminary case here. We haven't even got down to the passages which clearly demonstrate that Christ died for somebody, but we've made just a beginning case of the fact that the atonement is limited. Now, the question I have to throw out to you, and you need to respond to this now, is why don't people like this doctrine? Why are they so opposed to it? Well, again, it comes down to the, the same kind of approach that people argue against election and all the other doctrines we've been talking about is... People argue from a man-centered view. I mean, somehow it's wrong to them that God would save only some. They don't start with the conviction that all mankind is totally depraved and that they deserve the condemnation of God, and it would be fair if God sent everybody to hell. That just offends the man who says, you know, I am more dignified than God. It's my universe. And so it is just that we are in a sentimental, man-centered culture, and we're unable to grapple with what Scripture has revealed, and that is God does all things for his glory, and we cannot talk back to him. We have to understand God's holiness, his justice, his great love, and all of these things coming together in Christ's work. And we have to rejoice in the fact that he has elected some and redeemed them, and not complain that he is not as loving as we think he ought to be. This is a beautiful, rich, comforting, biblical truth. When Christ went to the cross, he knew who he was going to save, and he actually saved them. And if you believe in Christ tonight, you have the comfort of knowing that Christ died for you in your place, and he appeased the Father's wrath. There's nothing left to pay. And now because of that, you have eternal life. Stay with us next week as we continue on this topic of limited atonement. Thanks for joining us on Sinners and Saints. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. For more information, call 866-99-UNITED or log on to the web at urcsocal.org. That's 866-99-UNITED. <laughs> 